A very good morning to each and every one of you. We are so glad you joined us on this beautiful Sunday morning here at www.godsredeem.org. That's the website of our uh, congregation, the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ, located at 2091 Pitts Lane here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. If you're listening to us on Facebook, thank you as well. And we pray that you will share these lessons with those who uh, would enjoy the study and those especially who would need the study, who would be encouraged by the study, and who may be corrected by the study of 1 Corinthians. That's what we're looking at this uh, semester here, uh, this quarter rather, uh, at Northfield Boulevard. We're looking at uh, the church that was in very much confusion where Holy Spirit gifts were being selfishly used, not knowing how they were to be used, where preachers were being looked up as something to be uh, regarded highly rather than the content that they brought to the congregation. We look at carnality, brothers uh, taking others to law against each other <clears throat> with incest as we're going to look at today. Before we begin this, though, let's have a, a review of what we've looked at in chapters 1 through 4, and that was factionalism created by these uh, inner thoughts that Greek oratory should be the defining factor of whether a preacher was effective or not. And they uh, looked to Paul and Apollos and Cephas and others because perhaps uh, either of their manner of speaking or their appearance. And Paul was very upset about this because not only had it created division among the brethren, but it had uh, affected their unity. It had affected their love for one another and their love for the gospel. And so therefore the church was not growing as it should have. Their division, you remember, was attributed directly to this carnality of Greek oratory and uh, the appearance, which still goes on today. People still uh, look at preachers and either follow uh, this one or reject that one uh, because he just doesn't look like a preacher or he doesn't sound like a preacher and he uh, is not college educated and he doesn't have a good vocabulary. And many other reasons that we attribute to the personality or maybe uh, the so-called success in a congregation based on simply the physical things or the carnal things. The second problem uh, that they were experiencing because of this uh, <clears throat> factionalism was that they were thinking too highly of men in chapter four. So. As Paul tells them, this gospel that he brought to them is the wisdom of God. It's not something that's made up by men. There is no way that man could know the mind of God. There is no way the wisdom that is found in the Holy Scriptures could be of man. And he goes at length talking about this message being contrary to what the wisdom of man is there in chapter 1, and he said that this wisdom uh, teaches us the mind of God, it teaches us the will of God, and we should therefore listen rather than observe 
the outer appearance or the outer speech of men. The appeal to the common man, the appeal uh, of the scripture to those who would receive it, those who were not uh, necessarily the educated, those who were not uh, those great men who had uh, wonderful speech and correct uh, Greek and correct form and a voice that carried and could appeal to the emotions. This appeal to the common man, the common man who was looking past this life for what lay beyond, looking uh, and desiring uh, to know God and what his will was. The gospel again in chapter two was discussed being God's wisdom. Man could not have provided the plan of salvation uh, that God had provided. And in fact, the manner that Paul preached shows it wasn't the wisdom of men because Paul came, he said, uh, not with excellency of speech and he didn't come with uh, great oratory abilities or being able to stand in a pulpit and ooh and awe them with uh, the outer things of man. But he came and simply preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. We then went on last week in chapter three and talked about the proper evaluation of what is the preacher and what is his work uh, in the congregation? Well, they're fellow laborers. And as we use the example of a garden, you may have four people in the garden and one is sowing seed, another is cultivating and fertilizing, the other one may be pruning uh, some plants that had been transferred and there may be someone who's watering the garden. Are they working against each other? Certainly not. Do they have the same goal in mind? Yes, they do. They want good fruit and Paul wanted good fruit, but this division was preventing them because the gardeners were arguing amongst themselves. And so he exhorted them to be careful on how they were building this foundation that he had laid back in the book of Acts as he visited Corinth for the first time and worked with them for a year and a half, uh, that they needed to be careful how this building was built, not with wood and stubble uh, and hay, but with precious jewels and uh, materials of stone that would uh, hold together and be strong in storms. He gave them a warning to those who would destroy the temple by their ignorance, by their carnality, by their selfishness and the other things that were going on here. And it was a stern warning. We then looked at the church's role uh, there with the preacher in chapter three, and he gave some closing words on the subject of division in chapter four. Paul was concerned that they had the proper estimate of preachers and understanding. He told them the true test for preachers is their faithfulness what they preach, how they uh, behave. Men's judgments, he said, sometimes are premature and unreliable. It's God who knows the heart. It's God who knows the preachers. And he's the true judge of servants, of his servants, uh, when they preach and when they carry the gospel there in chapter four and verse five. 
God gave everyone different abilities as he pleased. And he gave different gifts uh, to those whom uh, the Holy Spirit uh, would give. But different abilities means that just because we may not speak as eloquently and uh, firmly and boldly uh, as someone else does not mean we can't carry the gospel. Just because uh, someone may be uh, able to wear only the same tie uh, every week if he wants to wear a tie. Uh, he may be poor, he may be rich, but whatever abilities God has given to us, it's not the outside man, it's the inner man whose desire is to present the truth, who is to encourage, to reprove and rebuke, and to gather those who are separate from God. And he contrasts the Corinthians with the apostles. They thought they were rich, they thought they were wealthy, and we compared them to the church at Laodicea, whom Jesus in the book of Revelation said, uh, though you think you're rich and uh, beautifully dressed, you're not. You're naked and you're poor and you're pitiful. The apostles were pitiful in the fact that they were poor, that they were persecuted, that they went many, many places to preach the word and were often rejected. They were clay vessels that had received this wonderful, wonderful gospel of Christ. And they were suffering for the Corinthians, but the Corinthians were simply enamored with themselves and their outer being. So as he closes in chapter four, he gives uh, some more closing words uh, on this subject about unity. Uh, his language was to uh, call them to repentance. It was not to uh, speak harshly uh, to them, to make them cry, it was to make them to cry out of godly sorrow and repent. It wasn't to get them angry, but to get their attention. And so Paul says, I wish I could be there with you. And he says he's going to send Timothy uh, to them. Uh, but he appealed unto them that until he got there, until Timothy got there, uh, that they should follow his example. Why? Because he was following Christ's example. And we looked at uh, just the thought that, you know, there are people in our lives that give us good examples of being Christians. There are members of our congregation. Uh, there are those who come and visit who we may know who attend other congregations, but they show uh, an example of Christianity that perhaps we ought to emulate as they're following Jesus Christ. And there have been many men in uh, women in my life who have shown great examples of benevolence, great examples of teaching, encouragement, uh, correction, uh, that I hope through my life, some of that has affected me in the way I behave myself before the Lord Jesus Christ. So Timothy is going to come. This letter we said is going to get to Corinth before Timothy gets there because he's got to stop uh, before he comes on his way. Uh, and Paul is going to explain uh, there in the latter part of chapter four, uh, the idea that they think that he's writing this letter because he doesn't want to face them with all the things he's saying. 
but Paul says he's not doing that. He wants to come uh, to them. Uh, there is a reason that he has not been able to come to them. He's going to send Timothy to help them until he can get there. Uh, but it's not because he doesn't want to say these things to them. However, he says it. Uh, he's reminding them of what he's already uh, taught them. And so with that, we pick up in chapter 5, and we look at the problem uh, with incest here in this particular chapter. Uh, this chapter introduces a new theme that is going to continue uh, through the end of chapter 6. And that theme is the problems that they have with morality. And we're going to look at chapter 5 today with the problem of incest. Then, Lord willing, as he gives us uh, the time, we're going to look at litigations and then uh, the problem of fornication in chapter 6. These were things that had really uh, taken hold in the church at Corinth. And when we look uh, at the problem, uh, it was mentioned here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. And the problem at Corinth was simply caused by uh, one of their members who was living with his father's wife. It was described as fornication. That word comes from pornea, which we get the word uh, pornography, uh, but also fornication. And it was a particularly offensive case of fornication because this member had taken his father's wife. We presume that it was probably, <clears throat> in using those words, uh, his father's wife, that this was his stepmother. And such a thing was not even to be tolerated among the Gentiles. The Jewish law, according to Le uh, Leviticus, the 18th chapter, verses 7 and 8, forbade uh, God's people from even uh, thinking about marriage to one stepmother. But the problem with this uh, problem is that the understanding and the knowledge of this sin had gotten outside the doors of the congregation. It spread. It says it was commonly reported, and it brought the church into disrepute among the community. And you can understand how it would. What are those people over there doing who say they follow God and who are teaching this new way, but yet they're condoning this uh, member of theirs who's living in sin with his father's wife? And the greater attitude was that man uh, or the members of that congregation uh, condoned it. Uh, they had taken uh, to being puffed up. And so they were uh, looking at it kind of fondly. Uh, even though the law forbade it for those who had come from a Jewish background or those who understood the, the law, the congregation was puffed up about it in uh, verse 2. They had become arrogant in defending, defending this wicked man. So instead of being puffed up, Paul says they should have mourned that one of their members was involved in sin. And you know, the church at Corinth may not be the only congregation that's guilty of that. When we look at different congregations and uh, through the uh, years and uh, the centuries, uh, there have been other congregations where sin was allowed to reign or it was hidden or it was not corrected. 
And in modern days, I've heard people who would say, well, that's just old Bob. You know, that's just how Bob uh, uh, acts. Rather than going to Bob and talking to him, uh, we get kind of puffed up about it and we laugh about it. Well, Paul proceeded to describe what action should be taken. And he said, though he was absent in the body, in the spirit, he was with them. And he had already judged what was to be done. The action should be taken in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, it was authorized by and commanded by Jesus Christ. He said also that the action should be taken when you are gathered together. This sort of discipline gets the congregation's attention. And it should be congregation. We have the uh, steps to go to a brother when he's in sin uh, privately, talk to him or her and discuss uh, their sin and encourage them to repent of those things. If they don't, then we're to take two or three more in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall something be confirmed. And if they don't hear then, then tell it to the church. The action should be taken when you're gathered together to let everyone know this is not to be condoned. The person uh, should be uh, delivered to Satan, he says. Delivering one to Satan, what does that mean? Well, the phrase uh, occurs in a couple of passages in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses uh, 18 through 20. The charge I trust to you, beginning in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 1, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Inasmuch as one who's saved is delivered from Satan, when he sins and is unrepentant, then he needs to be delivered back to Satan. In Colossians, the first chapter, beginning in verse 13, Paul said, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us, or transferred us, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. The one who's taken away from you is delivered back to the kingdom of Satan. It's not anything magical or uh, something you would not understand. It's something that this purpose is for the action of the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved. And so we're trying to bring that person back. We're trying to shame him when we take church discipline against someone. And when it gets up to congregational level, where the elders have to convene the congregation and bring the matter before the congregation, it's not meant to do anything but save that individual, that member, that sheep who's gone astray, to save his soul. And some uh, kind of look at this and go back to Ananias and Sapphira. Well, it's not the same thing. When we sin, when we refute the scripture of God, when we refute salvation, and when we refute the spirit, then we are no longer of God. And we looked at several 
passages in 1 John uh, to that purpose in 2 John. Uh, it's not like uh, Ananias and Sapphira at all, because when we take church discipline, uh, that spirit is not destroyed. But there's the hope that remains within each of us that that soul returns to God and is again transferred out of the flesh, out of uh, Satan's realm, into back into uh, the proper relationship with God. And it brings sorrow uh, to the flesh. It does, both for us who, ha who administer that sort of uh, correction, but also it should for the one who has been separated from his brethren. In Proverbs, the 13th chapter, verse 15, good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. And so we're appealing to the transgressor that he not accept ruin, that he sees how hard life is when he is without uh, his brethren, when he is without God and his mercy, when he is without those things that in Christ uh, he had benefited from. We think of the prodigal son who came back and he experienced bitter consequences and they brought him in godly repentance back to his father. The church's purpose in withdrawing membership and fellowship should always be redemptive. It should always be to bring that soul back, to save his soul, never out of retribution, never out of desire to just get rid of uh, the bad seed, but separate ourselves to give the one in error uh, time to think about what he or she has done and to out of godly sorrow, that godly sorrow to uh, be repentant. The danger of spreading morality is mentioned in chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse uh, 6 and going down through 8. Paul's concern that this uh, tolerating, tolerating uh, this brother in fornication would have the cause of causing people to think, well, it must be okay. No one's done anything about uh, brother so-and-so and what he's uh, doing with his life, uh, but it can uh, be a fire. Uh, he said, do you not know that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump in, in verse 6? And it's true, those of you who bake, uh, very little yeast is put in to make that bread rise, and it permeates the dough as uh, it's left to proof and to rise. It doesn't take much. Tolerating the sin at Corinth would cause others to think that, well, I can do that too and maintain my fellowship with God. The church that refuses to practice discipline becomes a haven for all sorts of dissident people, all sorts of people who are willing to do what they want before the other brethren, uh, not regarding God as their judge. And so Paul says, purge out that old leaven. And you remember, uh, maybe some of you Bible scholars, when we looked at the uh, Feast of the Passover and its origins and some of the things uh, that were kept with the Passover. It was a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. 
And at the beginning, on the 14th of uh, Nisan, which was the Hebrew month on which it was held, the Jews purged their houses. And sometimes this was a three-day event. And they would even get the children involved by taking a little bag and putting some uh, yeast in a little bag and hiding it in the house. And whoever uh, found it among the children would get a prize. Uh, but it was important that that house was swept and cleaned and purified, that no leaven, either in drink, either in bread, either in any part of the house where uh, the Seder or uh, the Passover lamb was uh, uh, to be eaten and the meal. And so our churches, our congregations need to be purified because Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been slain. And we're to keep the feast, and we do keep a feast. Each Sunday, a feast of memorial, remembering Jesus Christ in purity and holiness. Besides the feasts that we gather and partake of in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, in hearing the word of God read, in giving of our means, in encouraging one another, in holding one another up, and if necessary, sometimes, yes, even correcting uh, some of the brethren. So the old life of sin is generalized under the terms of malice and wickedness, verses, uh, verse 8 in chapter 5. The life of Christians, however, is to be lived in sincerity and in truth. And you notice uh, malice and wickedness don't have anything to do with sincerity uh, and truth. And so it is in this uh, atmosphere that we must live and grow as Christians. Thirdly, he was going to correct their previous misconceptions from verse 9 to 13. Previously, he said in verse 9, he had written the church about this problem, but some were just not willing to follow instructions. And we have those. Uh, God sees and hears those people daily who have been given the truth, but they reject it. Who have been told to repent, uh, but they reject it. And so Paul is reminding them that you can't be that way. Even though they were mocking him, uh, they charged that if they were to follow Paul's instructions not to keep company with fornicators, They'd have to leave the world. The whole world was full of fornicators. And in their uh, instance, there at uh, the church at, or at the city of Corinth, that may not have been far off. But Paul corrects that uh, idea in their head that he didn't mean the fornicators of this world. He's talking about the brother, the one who uh, has been called a child of God, the one who was added to the church, who is guilty of fornication. The instructions that Paul is giving them pertain to members of the church who had fallen into sin and had failed to repent. A brother or sister had been to them and talked to them about their need to repent, but they refused. So then they took two or three witnesses with them and again go to this brother or sister and appeal to him or her to repent. Now it had reached the church. And now it was the church's responsibility, the congregation's responsibility 
to make application of discipline and separate from this uh, brother. Uh, there were uh, other sins that they could have done, uh, but this was a particularly heinous sin that was being allowed, and they were puffed up about it. You know, we could have a, a list of sins, uh, covetousness. There are brethren who are covetous. Uh, they deal in extortion. Uh, they may, as Judas did, take a little here and take a little there. Uh, but they're robbers and they're ravenous. Uh, some may be idolaters, uh, railers, those who uh, repro reproach and revile people who smile in uh, uh, service, in worship service or class, and then go home and talk about how uh, bad so-and-so was or how bad the sermon was or the preachers always saying the same thing or we just talk evil about brethren. Or there may be some who are drunken. drunken. Uh, and this is a, a thing that happens particularly uh, in congregations. Those who have a little bit too much to drink, maybe even some who are uh, leaning towards alcoholism. And it needs to be talked about and the brother needs to be helped or sister. The church is forbidden to keep company with these who uh, refuse to repent. Thayer says that uh, forbidden uh, to keep company with means forbidden to be intimate with one. In other words, when a brother or sister is uh, being separated from us, who we withdraw fellowship from and refuses to repent, we can't have the same relationship with that brother. We can't go around acting like it's okay and that's just old Bob. Uh, we have to pray and work earnestly, not throw him away and set him to sea without a, an anchor or set him to sea uh, without any direction back. We have to constantly be that beacon to talk to them and to teach them and to preach to them and appeal to them uh, that they see their lives and sorrow for it because they're separated from God. That's what brings it back. And that's why it says that uh, we're not to eat with such a one. It's the reason uh, that this discipline uh, is effective is because our actions of withdrawing from that brother or sister will cause him or her to come back to God. The reason church discipline is limited to its members is simply that the church only has authority to judge its own members. In other words, uh, the congregation at Northfield Boulevard can't administer discipline uh, against someone in another congregation or someone out in the world. Uh, those who are without uh, the church of Christ or church of God or church of the spirit are those whom God judges. He's going to judge those. But we are the ones who judge our members. And the chapter concludes by telling the brethren at the church of Corinth to put away from among yourselves that wicked person. We have to uh, be firm. We have to be bold. And we have to ensure that we get rid of the leaven before we look up and the entire church is like the church at Corinth. 
it's gone haywire. There's no discipline. There's no understanding. There's no growth. There's no unity. And there is no love for God's word. As we continue on and look at the other uh, things that the Church of Corinth was guilty of, we're going to be looking at the litigation that they had among each other. And then we're going to go back and look again at fornication in chapter 6. So, God willing, next week, if you are with us, uh, would you continue to look at uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians? And if you have questions, please uh, make them in the comments section. For those of you who are on Facebook, you may do that as well. You may private message me. Uh, but I hope you're enjoying this study. It's a difficult study because there are things that should not be going on. There are things that are happening in Corinth that we hope and we pray uh, that will never happen uh, here in the congregation that we attend, especially Northfield Boulevard uh, or wherever you're listening from today, Case and Lane or, or other congregations that are faithful in the area. We, to do that, we need to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We need to study. We need to know the will of God. It's been given to us all that we need to know to prevent things like this from happening. That's our lesson for today, and I hope uh, it's been beneficial to you, God willing. And if he gives us the time, we'll see you next week for Lesson 5.